You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. If you haven't had a chance to check out the Alpha Burley Pro, it is a 100% top-to-bottom waterproof boot. They're perfect for the style of hunting that is done this time of year, whether you're a waterfowl hunter or walking through some swamps to get to your favorite tree stand. Check out the Alpha Burley Pro. They come in a variety of camo options and insulation options go visit lacrossefootwear.com lacrosse boots done right since 1897 this is the land and legacy podcast i'm your host adam keith and matt die and we are right here for another habitat heroes podcast Following up last week, we devoted the entire podcast to bottlenecks, and then we did part two of hunting bottlenecks on the Go Figure Hunting podcast. And so this week, we're going to keep that same trend, and we're going into hunting, correct, sorry, correction, (laughs) managing habitat, and managing bedding areas. It is November. I used to say welcome. This is what every listener, us, and outdoor enthusiast, hunter, whitetail hunter, whatever you want to call us, we look for. I mean, it is prime time deer killing. It is. There's nothing else to be said about it. This is what we all wait for, and that's why we're doing this topic. We've, We've thought about it planned out kind of the month of November and try and correlate what we're talking about each week to how it can help you as you're sitting in the stand, or I guess choosing your stand, and then how you're sitting in your stand, um, what you're thinking about, how to make that area even better. So, like Adam said, this week is talking about bedding areas, and the importance of bedding areas uh, doesn't really need to be mentioned in this podcast for this time frame. But I'm sure we will just drive that nail in the coffin um, this afternoon as we talk about this bedding areas in the podcast. It is. We said this on the first pot or last week with with the uh, bottlenecks. But when it comes to mature deer and trying to target mature deer late season, you want food during the rut. You want cover. You want bedding areas. Um, it is just a crucial part of consistent deer. Movement, consistent deer populations, consistency for success of hunting the rut with cover. You have to have that cover for more does to come in, to find that cover, to try to hide. Therefore, bucks follow, come in tow, trying to find those receptive does. It works hand in hand. Um, If you want to punch more tags during the rut, you need to improve the cover and security on your farm on your land, wherever it is. If you're hunting public ground, you need to locate that on public ground. Um, A lot of guys are looking, it seems like a lot of guys talk about marshes and places like that. You think about what those consist of, a lot of times you're looking at really tall, thick grass and reeds reeds and willow trees, and it's like, well, there's cover. That's why they're in there. And they're away from a lot of pressure, too, and, and hard to reach. Um, and so they're just natural places where does are going to find refuge and try and seek that cover. Um, and in tow, just like you said, will be the deer you're hopefully looking for. Um, it's just the biology of white-tailed deer. What they're going to do throughout much of their range in November is be seeking does. 
and especially this. I mean, it's, this is going to be released on November the sixth. I mean, it is getting into um, just the optimal time for bedding areas, hunting bedding areas. But this podcast is devoted to how to create them, and this is. I, I don't know. I feel like as consultants and information stuff out there, we oftentimes just focus or, or so much time is devoted articles, blogs, uh, videos into the food plot world. But I think from a hunter standpoint, this bedding area it far outweighs an importance level food plots. And more education needs to be devoted to creating safe, secure, optimal cover bedding areas versus a food plot situation. Again, from a hunting standpoint, and I think we talked about this in one of the podcasts last week too, and that was, oh gosh, I just lost my, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Seriously, holy crap. I, was, I had it. <laughs> Welcome right to there. the boat. It happens. <laughs> um, Man, I'm getting old. To me, I had it. The the bedding areas, you just deal with it. You're not going to dig it up until minutes down the road. People are used to this out of me, but not you. Um, whenever we're talking bedding areas and habitat, it's it's not, you know, since we are in early November, we're talking so much about deer and the rut and punching tags and hunting. But this podcast is not designed specifically to help hunters kill more deer it is designed to improve the habitat that we have to where there's a lasting effect a positive effect to improve the habitat for a multitude of species native to that area now occasionally we'll bring in adapted species that aren't native but have beneficial um, sides to them like food plots or fruit trees but overall the message is improving habitat but by improving the habitat and looking at improving the habitat in this sort of format, we get to experience the beneficial side of it by punching more tags, seeing more deer, and enjoying hunting more because we have more um, productive uh, populations of of game species like deer, turkey, quail, ducks. I remembered. Well, I knew I was going to have to ramble for a little while. That was so embarrassing. So I think it... But like I already every- forgot where you were going with it. <laughs> <laughs> Man, we're bad tonight already. Just getting started off on the wrong foot. But I feel like the rut, you have varying opinions about I'm sorry. What was the first part of that again? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Don't get me sidetracked. But the, the varying opinions of the rut are people love it or they hate it. And, and I feel like the people who love it are the ones who have the defined bedding areas and the people who hate it the seth harkers well he actually doesn't enjoy it as much because he he loves the late season but he has great bedding yeah well and and he's able over time to be able to pattern his deer prior to the rut very well but and and after the rut because he's got so much food but i think there's just a i don't know who's going to show up here and you know what for me i don't it doesn't matter but he knows where where to go. If you know yeah. what I mean, like he'd rather know who's who's coming here, who's gonna show up, what time they're gonna be there, like get their pattern down to a T. Whereas it's more random. But I feel like if you you're the person who likes to hunt the rut, you have the bedding area on your property, or you know where to find it on um, on public ground. So there's two two different opinions on it. So whether you stand on I love the rut or you hate the rut. We're going to tell you how this week to create the bedding area so everyone will enjoy it and get the same sense of uh, hunting pleasure, if you will, from this topic. Hunting bedding areas during the rut because that's where deer are going. Adam, before we get in, because it's hunting season, we have to at least share a little bit of a hunting story of sweet, sweet November. You have one that comes to mind that's like short and sweet. And well, I'll, like, I'll share a couple stories now because I that reminds that's too bad. <laughs> too bad. Um, so we've been experienced with this cutting link system. And we talked about it last week. We're going to talk about it this week because we do, we're experiencing, experimenting with it to where it is very enjoyable. 
it's do you remember there was times in our lives where checking trail cameras was a a, a weekly event oh yeah um and the amount of time it took and the amount of just wear and tear and going to the farms we now live over an hour from our main farms both of them um to where it is not an easy f- project to go and check cameras and come back and see what's on the carts. It's just not feasible. Um, but then, so by the time in in the last two falls, um, going to check those cameras, by the time we got there and checked them, they were old news. What happened was already over. Now we're trying this Cuddy Link system, and we're getting pictures almost within the day of being taken. Um, but that creates a kind of a negative effect. And I'm going to use this story. You and Chad were hunting the other night. And I got a couple emails, and I check them, and a new buck had just showed up very close to one of our stands. Um, and I was like, man, I bet they wish they were in that stand. About that time, Chad texted me and said, you know, the worst part about these cameras is the constant torture of knowing you're in the wrong spot. Yeah, yeah. And that's this time of year of going, okay, where where's the right spot to be? Bottlenecks and bedding areas. We're still kind of um, – this podcast we're recording a week early because we want to hunt more. Um, and not be worrying about recording the podcast. But that was in mid-October when that happened to where you were still hunting food plots, but now it's starting to shift to where we're, we're wanting to hunt these bottlenecks, bottlenecks, bottlenecks and bedding areas. Um, that's one story. The story I have for you on one of my favorite November hunts happened right around November 10th. It was opening day of Missouri rifle season. But I was so dead set on taking a bow, and my buddy Colton um, wanted to go with me. This has got a lot of complicated stuff in it. Um, so we're headed to Kingsville stand, which sat right over the food plot. And actually, I moved the stand around a lot. But looking back now, horrible strategy because I had to walk. The ridge tops w- was wide open at the time. Um, Minus the big blowdown on the back from a big windstorm that came through. So I had bedding to the south, food plot right out front. But I had to walk right through to get there. Ended up getting to the stand, climb up, and this is where a safe line is crucial. Uh, I was in an old stand. Um, I don't think this manufacturer is still around. But I climb up. Colton's in the hunter stand or in the uh, in the cameraman stand above me. I step into the platform. I turn around and I'm getting ready to start hooking stuff up. And pow, Oof. cable breaks. About dumped me out. I fell back, grabbed the tree, and I'm like, Colton, this stand just broke. Mm. And somehow only one side broke, but I was able to hold the limbs and didn't fall out. And I wasn't hooked up yet either. Yikes. Because I just turned around to do it. And uh, I'm like, what in the world? There's no way I can draw my bow now. Right. There's just no way I can stand and draw. And there was too many limbs. I'm I like, think most what? people are probably wondering, wait, you stayed and hunted? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Opening day, I ain't going to miss it. And so I oh, ended boy. up going and uh, I'm like, I'm going to lower my bow. You hand me your rifle. And I'll just sit. And so... Yeah, with a broken cable. I'm in the way that ridge sets is if you're on the ground, you can't see very well. So okay, I'm like, so we have you, to be. Oh, so you, you get you didn't sit in the stand, is what you're saying. You climbed down. No, I I stayed in the stand because I knew if I climbed down, I wasn't going to be able oh to. So gosh. I harnessed in. Um, there was Ooh. so many limbs that basically what I did was I just sat in the platform or sat on the seat, and um, as long as I wouldn't stand on the platform, I was fine. And so uh, I lower the bow. I grab Colton's gun. We're sitting there. He's filming. Now, keep in mind, when he's filming, it was like, this is still going to be great. We hear grunting. We hear chasing. Also, we look up, and here comes this nice three-and-a-half-year-old buck, um, just a nice, clean eight-pointer, chasing this doe right up into the food plot. And the doe comes right to the food plot. Colton tells me, hey, it says no tape. I'm like, What? It's a brand new tape. Well, I'd loaned the camera to another buddy of mine, and he had filmed. He had filled the entire mini SD or mini DV mm-hmm. 
tape with a youth hunt where they shot a doe, and the last 20 minutes is them with the camera set up of them over the doe talking. And I'm like, nice. you idiot. <laughs> I didn't realize this till later. Yeah. But uh, ended up, the buck comes in, works a scrape right in front of us, 15 yards, works a scrape, turns around, grunts, walks five steps. I go, poom, shot him with a rifle. He ran 20 yards, fell over dead. And all that could have been on film, um, and we were pumped. All that could have been on a safe tree stand. <laughs> yeah, it could have been on a safe tree stand. That I ended up selling that that tree stand later, but I replaced it with chains, so it was like the loudest stinking oh tree tree stand to hang. But it was it would support an elephant after that. So that was my favorite opening day. Brought it back to camp. Deer How much camp. did you sell it for? I don't know, fifteen bucks probably. Not a lot. <laughs> Not oh, a lot. Oh, man. That was my favorite November hunt. <laughs> favorite ridge on the farm with one of my dear, dear friends uh, at Point Blank Range. Funny story. Um, yeah, you couldn't. I mean, opening day. So, I'll share a quick one. It was, I would say. My quick one turned into two long ones, yeah. by the way. <laughs> so, it's going to be real um, quick. Hunting with my dad and brother. Um, and, and friend, and it was later into November, 25th-ish, uh, right around Thanksgiving time frame, and uh, we actually ended up sitting, uh, all took you know, different locations, um, sat that morning, and then met up, and I was like, you know what, let's... You know what, oh, were you guys hunting it? with dogs in Virginia? No, <laughs> no. It was, it was basically a, a little man drive, um, a little push. And it was a small little clear cut, um, a couple acres in size, really, across a ridge top, and then it, a couple drains came up into it, um, into that big main ridge. So, uh, anyhow, I was like, you know what, shoot, I don't care, I'm, I'm going through. It was basically chest high broom sedge and blackberry and greenbrier, and thick as hair on a dog's back, nasty, nasty thick. Anyhow, start going through it. And it sounds funny. It's like one of the most memorable hunts was a, a, a little man drive, but it all makes sense as, as, as it comes and kind of unfolds, winding kind of what, through it. Just I'm trying just to, curious. Why do you guys call it man drives? Because it's a man. Because we used to use it, dogs. It's it's okay. So you called them dog drives, or you just it's just called a drive? Because out here we always called them deer drives. We're doing deer drives. Well, see, we had the op the option and opportunity legally. To use dogs. Like, Missouri, yeah. you can't. Like, yeah. under no circumstance. So, you besides. just called a man drive. So, right. For us, growing up, there's people who, who would do, basically, what they call it, wind bump, or, like, you guys was just, that was your only option for deer drives. But us, we, we had did We did drives. bumps. Yeah. You would either, it was either, it, it was a man walking. Yes. Was it. But That's we just it. called him deer drives. But yeah. you guys... The same thing. We had you to just distinguish because man we had drive. options. You had to call them a man drive. I guess yeah, yeah. I, we didn't have to call ourselves man, or, or I, I guess I don't know. It was just <laughs> simply distinguishing between two techniques. That's it. <laughs> we just said we're doing deer drives. <laughs> so yeah. going through there, and of course, use the wind to my advantage, guy. Actually walking through it. Anyhow, twenty yards out in front of me. At the very peak of one of those drains that cut up into this ridge, super thick in that area, just hear this awful commotion, just briars ripping, twigs snapping, deer jumping. I see a tail, and I see antlers. I'm like, holy cow, it works its way. I knew kind of, I knew where my dad was kind of stationed, posted up, and my brother and the other guy. I was like, that's going right to my dad, just kind of covering one of those exits. So you're like... A deer, he's going to have to go out through here. And because of the, the steepness of the terrain, and sure enough, right past my dad, shot him. Great, great deer. Um, like dark chocolate antlers. We didn't really get that. And a deep woods bases. buck. Deep woods buck. <laughs> deep, clear-cut buck. Um, but it was, it, it was cool because we're going to talk about, it. basically this podcast made me think of it, just there creating was, we these We both created areas. two – we both – shared two things about our hunts that we both mentioned bedding and thickets yes um yes. and so that kind of 
plays into this whole this whole time frame and hunting strategy and habitat improvement. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, so yeah, that's exactly right. Like it, it just plays into it and makes you think about where you're hunting at in these next couple of weeks, um, where you're opting to choose. And if you don't have what we're talking about available to you on a property, then it needs to be created. Not only for success of you hunting, but for the deer themselves for multiple reasons. These bedding areas that we're talking about creating – aren't only good just in, you know, the month of November, but they're going to be utilized as food and cover throughout the entire year for deer and other species. That's right. They're very dynamic and need to be a part of the landscape that you hunt for success, but for the longevity of the habitat and wildlife that use them. So So we both shared a story that involved thickets, bedding, um, and and showed the importance of hunting near bedding areas or being aware of bedding areas um, when you're hunting this time of year. Um, of course, there's guys in deep south that have timber country, and then there's guys in the upper part of the Midwest or um, Iowa, let's just say, Kansas, Nebraska, um, Nebraska even parts of Kentucky, wherever you are that might be a little more open. And so we have a couple different scenarios, not scenarios, but projects, ways to improve bedding areas in timber country and in open country. Yeah. Um, now, there's all types of bedding areas. Some guys will be will go as far as defining beds, specific beds. We do, we typically go with more of bedding areas and trying to create as many bedding areas as much ground as possible to where we have the we have more bedrooms if you will we have more beds available to where we can have yeah instead of having instead of trying to create a specific bed let's try to create a hotel where multiple deer can stay in here and we can target for us we don't get into really targeting one specific animal but more we manage to try and prove the whole herd and so we're looking at trying to define bedding areas um, and creating bedding areas for the entire population because not only does it help that specific animal or th- that specific population, but it helps a multitude of native species by fragmenting your landscape. That's right. That's One right. thing that I think a lot of people or you can't, we can get caught up in is I want to have, well, if, if cover's good, I want as much cover as possible. If food's good, I want as much food as possible. And that goes into having big chunks of it. Well, a 50-acre chunk of complete bedding of cover, let's just say grasses, is not great. Um, You still have kind of, you get out in the middle and it almost, if it's all grass, it's a monoculture grass. It's not ideal. There's no forage value. There's no forage value. If you have a 50-acre chunk of woods, it's not great. If you have a 50-acre chunk of food plot, uh, very rare, but let's just humor ourselves, it's not great. We want to fragment it and bust it up as much as possible. So we would rather have five one-acre bedding areas or two-acre bedding areas versus one 30-acre bedding area. Just because it's easier to hunt fragmented landscape, it's easier to, it's more beneficial. Um, Overall, it's just more ideal. So when we're talking about creating bedding areas, that can go from, half acre in size all the way or even down to a quarter acre in size all the way up to let's say maybe 10 acres but outside of that we don't typically try to create anything bigger than that just because you do still kind of you need to fragment it you need to bust it up you need to have some diversity in there and and when i say diversity we're talking about different species but then you also want to have you don't want to have just 20 acres um, that you've created that's just 90% grass and you're like, oh, that's my bedding area. You would rather have a mix of shrubs, a mix of um, young forest, kind of shrubby in that stage, shrubby oaks, some some wildflowers and, and uh, legumes, whatever. You want to have that um, diversity in there. For me, it just comes down to ease of hunting. Yeah. I mean, 10 acres to re- review, uh, not review, but observe and effectively hunt um 
that's tough. That can be tough. Uh, if you have a rifle, that may be easy. But for us, uh, a lot of the movement period that we experience, Missouri, or, or think about Kansas, they don't have a rifle season until I believe it's the first Saturday of December, and many states are like that. And you're missing out a large portion of November when deer are most active on their feet that you want, and, and in using uh, these bedding areas the most, you want to be effective. So there's there needs to be varying sizes, but I would say our average bedding area that we create in the timber is going to be between that one to three-ish acres in size. Three-ish being really, that's a big project. And I'm, um, I might say maybe even a half acre on the low side yeah. in some instances. Um, so half acre to three quarters of an acre. Or three acres, three sorry. Acres. Uh, so the big question is, okay, all right, guys, you've told me they're important. I understand that you want to hunt over them. I'm going to listen to the hunting podcast after I listen to this one. But tell me how I need to create them and maybe where I need to create them. So numero uno when it comes to creating bedding areas in the timber is I love it. We talked about it the other day. It's honestly a stress reliever, but I love running a chainsaw. I love being able to specifically select the way a tree is going to fall, the way it's going to be cut, which tree individually. It's not. It's basically a, a magnifying glass, and, and you are part of creating that bedding area. It's not like a, a forester or a lawyer comes in and does it all for you, but you're consciously making and purposefully making a decision of this tree stays, this tree leaves, this tree is gone. This tree is hinged. Um, I'm treating this tree with herbicide. So really, when we when we go the route of, you know, us individually creating these, it's a chainsaw. The tools are chains, sharp chainsaw and herbicide. That's going to treat a tr- tr- stump treatment method. Golly. I Dude, tried we're, to, I tried we're to a long ways into this podcast and stump. podcast night because yeah. we're doing four Woo. of them in one night. So tools of the trade for this method, chainsaw, herbicide for stump treatment. And that's it. It is as simple as that. And you're going in to an area that you want to create great bedding, maybe because of its proximity to a bottleneck like we talked about last week or, or makes sense as a travel corridor um, to link to a food plot a couple hundred yards away, whatever it may be. I love that method of going in and creating it yourself. You know, I think with as much as we talk about fire, with as much as we talk about chainsawing, we get the comment on occasion of people like, man, do you guys hate trees? Or like, what is it about trees that makes you want to go cut? We're not promoting cut all trees. Uh, what we're promoting is healthier trees and managing trees. Um, to me, think of like if you have a hundred acres and you wanted to be a cattle farmer, would you go out and dump a hundred cows on that hundred acres and say, "Oh, that's good. Oh, I think I can get thirty more cows on there," and you just pack it with as many cows as possible, knowing that some of the tr- some of the cows. Oh, I almost gave it away. Some of the cows aren't as healthy or a lot, almost all the cows aren't as healthy because they're crowded. They don't have as much nutrients. No, you wouldn't do that. But we do that with trees all the time. We neglect them. We just walk away. We let them, we think that just because they appear to be tall and green that they're fine. But there's a lot of disease and sickness and indicators that are out there that tell us that we need to manage our trees just like we manage everything else. And that could be as simple as, uh, it used to be as simple as prescribed fire um, or, or I guess, wildfires back in the day with, with naturally occurring lightning strike fires and lit by the natives. But we let our timber just do its thing, and it's not as healthy as it once was. Um, and it's n- certainly not as healthy for the wildlife that call that home. So TSI, chainsawing, doing all this stuff is crucial to improving the health of the trees while also creating much better habitat for the wildlife 
So with that, hopefully every one of you are thinking, man, I'm going to go fire up a chainsaw. I need, I need to do it. I'm going to talk to a forester. I'm going to find a way to improve the overall health of my trees. I think that we, we, we have gotten, I don't know, accused of not liking trees. But I think that there's a very happy medium between identifying healthy trees, but then also the added benefit of sunlight. The reason we're cutting trees in a timber setting to create bedding areas is because of the return and the return that we get from cutting trees is sunlight to the forest floor, which makes the forage and cover grow. You are cutting something, you're eliminating something, but what you get in return is much better than what was present. So you're you're getting more than what you lost. So no, I don't dislike trees, but I know in these specific areas I'm getting way more bulk of forage and cover when I cut these trees than when I leave them and let them be unmanaged. So our general rule of thumb and and every site is different, of course, but our general rule of thumb when it comes to cutting with a chainsaw and treating with herbicide is to break, if you will, your area. Let's say you have an acre, break it up, um, not not physically, but just in your head, one third of the trees are going to be flush cut, another third of the trees are going to be hinged, and then another third will be flush cut and stump treated. And that's just the trees that you're cutting. That's not all the trees within Correct. that area. There's certain Correct. trees within that area that we're going to leave um, and allow them to express more of their potential. But when it comes to if you've defined an acre and say this is the area I'm cutting, then the ones that you're going to cut, a third of them get cut in these various yes. ways. And I would, I would say in defined bedding areas, not not we're removing, we're separating this from TSI, but in an area that we say, this is where we want the deer to bed. Right here. This is it. I would, it's a bold number, but I'm going to say, we want to have 80% sunshine, 20% trees. Because what comes back with that amount of sunlight is that beautiful blend of grasses, forbs, and all the stump sprouts that come in there. So you have this composition of different structure and heights within this one area. That's a lot and, of cutting. And what some people, this was a question that came up at uh, QDMA National Convention, mm-hmm. was what happens, though, when I cut that? I'm just going to have this huge increase of invasives. Right. I may have bush honeysuckle just blow up i may have chinese privet just blow up here is our thoughts and here here's what to consider with that when you had closed canopy forest what was what was being beneficial you had zero cover beneficial or benefits and you had limited forage benefits with the chinese privet you got some cover benefits some forage benefits but long-term negatives Yep. So it is a step in the right direction to have those trees thin to where more sunlight comes down. But the next step would be following up and in re- removing those invasives. In and situation. I think some people get caught to where they say they would rather have the native or the, the close. Some say they would rather have closed canopy and not do anything because they're scared of what's going to happen. I, I do not like that mindset. No. Some people would say, I'm fine with the invasives because that's better than closed canopy forest. I'm still not fine with that because that's still long-term not beneficial. Long-term, huge problems, but we haven't seen the amount of invasives as far as bush honeysuckle and Chinese privet to see the long-term negatives that it's going to present, and that scares the heck out of me. It hasn't been on our landscape long enough. Long enough to see huge... But what will happen is long-term is we will go from, uh, let's just say, oak hickory forest and we'll have the understory choked out with bush honeysuckle to where once those oaks die out, there won't be the next generation to replace those oaks that have been died, that have been killed off or died from old age 
or been cut out because we'll have that understory completely choked out by bush honeysuckle. And then it will be a, a forest of dominated by bush honeysuckle. So to sum, sum that up. For what sum you're that up for me is closed canopy is not great, but one step better than that is a managed closed canopy that has a flush of non-natives is still a little better, but ultimately what we want to do is remove the invasives in the next step. That's so where I'm at. Opening up the canopy is fine if you have invasives, but you have to act on those invasives. That's still step two. Yeah, there's you still a step to, to follow. So either way, that sunlight, that's the value of why you would cut the closed canopy forest yes. is to get the added sunlight, which is going to help get some natives established, but then that follow-up of the um, invasive treatment has to come and be a part of that. So then hopefully down the road, instead of domination by um, the invasives, you have that native seed bank that was able to flush a little bit, treat the invasives. Now it's ready and rocking. Absolutely. You've actually improved it. You've actually changed it. And and if you do get on it early enough, you let's say you open up that canopy, you have this huge flush of, of green growth, and some of it is non-native or invasive, try to burn it. Oh, yeah. Those non-natives are probably not adapted to fire, and so you can knock them back a lot easier and, and then keep your your foot on their neck, if you will, mm-hmm. um, by managing them with fire. That's right. Um, so ha- the whole chainsaw is one of the best ways, quickest ways to get bedding in timber country. Um, that's not only bedding, but you get a lot better forage. Yeah. To put it into perspective, you and I, two chainsaws, um, of medium size can go out and create a one to two acre bedding area in in an hour crappy lot of stems per acre um, timber. We can create that in two hours, two and a half hours. Easy, yeah. Done deal. Dan Walk Johnson, away. maybe not as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, an man. old shoot. That was pro- was That's that last fall when we did that podcast. When did we do that podcast with I him? I think it was about last And he fall. said something yeah. like, cut 40 trees a day, and we're like, oh, my gosh, how yeah. dull is that chainsaw? <laughs> yeah. So, anyhow, yeah. But it, it, if you're proficient with a chainsaw, we're talking massive changes to a property and creating a two-acre bedding area in two and a half hours. Doing that in a dormant season, treating those stumps, you won't have um, the undesirable trees to regrow, but you'll have beneficial sprouts come up as, as spring greenup occurs. And then all the the um, natural succession in that first year will grow and get tall enough. Within a year, you have a bedding area already established with treetops um, as other physical obstructions for them to bed up against, block themselves um, from view of predators, whatever it may be. Feel secure in those areas. Two and a half hours of work, you can do it and change the way your November is going to hunt in one single year. Another way to do it is bring in the bigger guns and have a skid steer with um, an implement on it, like a forestry mulcher, to come in and grind up trees, knock them down, tip them over. I would say, personally, I would not want that operator to grind up all of those trees. I would simply want that person with a grinder head to pop that tree, knock it over, and then let um, the natural process take up take over from there. Because when you were to grind that entire tree up, now you've littered the entire area with wood chips. And that basically is like a massive foot layer of leaf litter that makes it tough for that natural seed bed to then grow. It's tough to dry out as well. Those chips hold a lot of moisture. So knock those trees over, let them lay, move on. I, I'd be scared to know what how long that would take for a skid steer, well-trained skid steer operator to create one of the bedding areas we're talking about. No time at 20, all. 20, 30 minutes maybe. Maybe. With an operator. Maybe. Yeah. But – the, the only negative I see to that is it's a little less selective on the actual trees. Um, and then the herbicide follow-up is a little bit more difficult too. Because if you're grinding stumps down um, pretty flush, then you don't have the ability to identify what tree that is. I am going to throw out another little hiccup, I guess, in the skid steer. 
if you're in an area with high invasive understory to where you're like, I just need to knock this stuff down. And it's going to create a lot of wood chips. You look at going in and grinding bush honeysuckle, and you're just throwing chips everywhere. We have seen success where people have broadcasted a um, a native mix on those wood chips and had great success the next year of follow-up germination to where maybe those wood chips help kind of keep some of those invasives back and allows these others that you threw on top to germinate to where you would have enough of those enough growth on top to where you could send a good consistent fire through. So it really depends on the situation too, but ideally you're not, you're going to want to keep that cover by just knocking that tree over. Correct. Correct. There's immediate cover at that point. Immediate. Uh, And that was when, when my brother and I way back first looked at how do we improve the habitat on this farm? How do we make the deer hunting better? We had some food plots in place, but we didn't have great bedding. So we went in and immediately started cutting trees, and it's over, I mean, as quickly as you can cut it, you have cover. And then you throw a growing season on top of that with the added sunlight, and you're going to have this long-term quick change. How does that make sense? You're getting long-term, long-term benefits, benefits through quick change. Yep. And they're as easy as they sound. There's It, it, it doesn't take a extremely skilled person that's super knowledgeable about deer and deer management to create this. It is simply going in, kind of using that guideline of the one-third, 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 and establishing it. It's tough to do it really wrong because let's look at a clear cut, for instance. If everything was just gone in clear cut, what's going to happen? Succession's still going to take over. There's still going to be tops and, and... um, stuff laying on the ground. Now we want to understand the value, of course, of you know the trees that you're cutting. So we probably wouldn't do a clear cut. But what I'm saying is, either way, if you were to cut everything, you're still going to have a bedding area. One thing I will say when creating them, if you're new to it and you're saying, I got to get, you suggest, you know, 80%, 70-80% sunlight. Here's one of the things. Even if you're scared to get to that, start get to fifty. Come back the next year, cut out, cut out more. You the first year return. we, the first year we cut Dollhart out that bedding area, um, or that bedding thicket, it was maybe fifty percent, maybe. Mm-hmm. Really, what we did was we cut out a majority of the cedars in that a area. A lot of understory and mid mid. And now we still have a lot of uh, spice bush coming up mm-hmm. that we have to take care of, but. Overall, the first year was meh. It was a huge change, but it wasn't the goal we're looking for. Correct. So, next you could do the hack and squirt treatment. This is for or girdle and spray. Yeah, maybe leaving the tree standing. Maybe someone who's afraid of cutting felling trees, um, not proficient with a chainsaw. It can still be done. You have a hatchet and a bottle of herbicide, and you're going around and doing this. Basically, you're selecting the trees that are are gone, being terminated. To me, another way to be looking at this, how to use the hack and squirt or girdle and spray is going, I've already cut trees. I've already done step one. Step two is I want more sunlight, but I don't want to pile up more trees to mm-hmm. to yeah. to eventually maybe steer deer. They're already coming by the stand perfectly. I don't want to affect that, but I still want more sunlight. I'm going to girdle and spray or hack and squirt. Yep. Um, and that's that's really where these two would come in. Or you're on limited budget and you want to just cover a huge area really quickly. It's not a lot of big trees. Hack and squirt would probably be an awesome option. Or if you got buddies and you're cu- they're coming in, they don't know how to run that chainsaw, and you're like, let's just let's just get together in a group, bring a hatchet, I'll supply the herbicide and the bottles, yep. and then you can. I mean, oh my gosh, how quickly can you move through five acres and selecting? trees to terminate with hack and squirt with three guys you can blast through that yep it, it does not take a lot of time and then you're doing that during the dormant season again that canopy if done correctly um herbicide applied at the recommended rate those trees will not green back up no so all that will be open to let the sunlight work in that area so really whatever financial situation you're in whatever physical limitations you have, um, these bedding areas in timber ground can be created. 
and those are our preferred ways to do it. Um, after that, the, the follow-up management to keep them in that state because if you do have a clear cut every seven to 10 years, you're back at pretty much full canopy closure. So to keep these areas in that beneficial stage where you have the right cover, the right height, prescribe fire. That's it. Every three to five years. Yeah. Or the investment's incredible. I think of the naturally occurring um, bedding thickets that could happen through fire. And those are the south-facing slopes at the top of the ridge that the fire gets too hot and it knocks back a whole lot of trees. Mm -hmm. And let's just say the first time you do it, it knocks back a lot of big trees or older trees or taller trees to where um, you now have big skeletons on this south-facing slope. And you're like, well, maybe that's your goals. I I think of the west-facing slope above the gravel road off just off the family farm. We want that to be more open. We don't want as many trees. So we're going to try and burn that as hot as possible. And we know that over time we're going to kill out a bunch of trees on the, just off the cusp of the of the ridge top because we're going to have really hot fires there. There will be a backing fire to come down a little bit, but after that... Yes, we're going to let it rip. And so when we do that, we're going to have a lot more of stump sprouts. So we're going to have quick-growing shr- uh, sprouts, which appear to be shrubby, but every two to three years are going to get knocked back again. And it's going to create some amazing bedding areas. Oh, yeah. By naturally occurring fire. So no matter where you're at in timber country, there's no excuses. You can create these bedding areas. And now if we get to open open field field, bedding. Now we're going to give you you people Now we do have some topics in this one, which could be a little bit like, ooh, not ready to do that yet. Farm's not ready for that. So prepare yourself. Um, when it comes to open field areas, that can go basically anything that's not timber. So it may be, let's just say, a purchase of a crop farm and converting crop field to bedding. Or it's an old pasture that used to be used to have cows on it or horses on it that's converting it to bedding. It may be whatever it is. It's just anything but timber. How do we improve it and make it more of a bedding area? Um, let's just say ag fields. We have taken ag fields, which were corn and soybeans for years and years and years, and lots of herbicide used to kill out weeds. Unfortunately, that was a case that may have caused, because of that activity, it may not be a an area that we can just say, okay, no more corn, let's just let the, the native grasses just grow back up. Uh, most likely, they might, they probably won't be there. And, but and there might forbs. be yeah. other forbs that come up. Um, depending on your area, it really depends where you're at. It could be if you did that, you have to know what's going to occur. Practices. It could be tons of pigweed. Well, we don't want that. It could be tons of mare's tail. Well, we don't want that. Or it could be, let's just say you're in an area that doesn't have those uh, herbicide-resistant crops. It's a lot of ragweed and pokeweed. Um, and you're going to see a lot of prickly lettuce or all these other goldenrod. Uh, golden it could be stuff like that. Well, that would be amazing. But if we're looking at ag fields and popular crop country um, areas, regions, yeah, you might have to look into what a lot of the weeds are that farmers are dealing with because that might be what comes up. Um, that's where it come into planting, planting mixes of native grasses and wildflowers, um, like the one from Pure Air Natives, which is designed specifically for getting an established um, field of native grasses quickly, and that's where it's just three. It's three types of grasses in the bag um, and you establish that and you can still use some herbicide to kill out some of your other invasives, uh, other species that you don't want to where once you've got that under control, you can add phase two of the prairie mix to where um, you have fantastic bedding now. Yeah. And though that's your most preferred safest route. Yeah. If you are in ag country um, or if you're in trying to convert ag fields to bedding areas. 
that's your quickest route to success. Um, and you're planting and you know, you're knowing what is going to be able to, what's coming up. Um, there's not this, this guessing game of, okay, herbicide, there's been tillage. What am I going to experience? Um, if you're planting that native blend, prairie blend from pure air, then you're going to be, okay, this is what to expect. It's on the way. Um, now in comparison to old pasture fields, um, that aren't being used for cattle, then you're looking at a different technique that needs to be used. Most of the common um, grasses that can be experienced throughout the country uh, in those old pastures is fescue, bahia grass, smooth brome, or Bermuda grass. And either, no matter which one, those grasses are turf-like grasses. So they are going to be growing across the entire top layer of soil and they are like a blanket a concrete slab across the soil that does not or it very drastically it inhibits the expression of the native seed bank in those areas so because of the differences in agricultural techniques we've seen experienced in those areas that do have fescue in our region just simply spraying out the fescue at the right time of the year with the right herbicide combination, we have great succession that takes place. It regrows from there, and we're well on our way to establishing a great bedding area based on the natural native seed bank right afterwards in those openings. Yeah, and, and so basically what we're trying to do in this open country bedding areas is improve the growth of a species that's going to withstand some of the elements of winter uh, and fall. And so like obviously crop fields aren't going to become bedding areas because they harvest the crops. Um, pasture ground is usually grazed too short to provide anything, um, any sort of structure. So removing these, especially these turf grasses like the ones you mixed are just crucial to having more growth in that two to four foot uh, region. So as a land manager though in these open field areas I think it just just like as if you're trying to create one in timber country you have to make a decision of which trees stay which trees are gone and as a manager in these early successional areas you are the one guiding that succession along. If you start to see Natives, I mean, uh, invasives come up or troublesome weeds, you need to take care of them. Yeah. Quickly. Or whether that's fire or herbicide, but you're the kind of guiding and directing this path um, of, of what succession kind of takes over. So, and hopefully it's extremely diverse. And this, although you will have proper or generally proper cover um, at the right height, you're one you need to let that succession mature and get to different stages. Um, so basically, year three, five, what does it look like at that point? What other species have come in? Have we gone away from the ragweeds? Have we gotten more um, perennial season grasses? Have we gotten some more shrubs to start to develop? Typically, yes, you would definitely see that in a uh, true progression of succession. So you need to let it mature along from year one, but, but be the guide for that succession. So let's say autumn starts popping up in these areas, which can certainly Burn happen. It! Burn it! <laughs> Burn it, cut it, treat it, get it out yeah. of there. Don't let that take hold because you'll be fighting it long term. Be the guide, be the land manager, and identify. This is, this is how you learn species in succession right here, letting things grow up. To me, also, to keep in mind an open country, same thing is true for creating bedding areas. Smaller is sometimes better um, to where you're not going to take a whole 50-acre crop field. Let's say you buy it and you're like, I'm going to turn this into something more beneficial to wildlife. You wouldn't just go drill the whole thing in native grasses and be done with it. You would want to mix in forbs. Then you would want to mix in shrubs. And you would want to let this kind of fragment to where you have tons of grasses and tons of wildflowers 
and then you have some pockets of some shrubby species like even some sort of sumac or some sort of uh, plum or a uh, or a gray dogwood where you have fragmented that landscape. So same is true even on open country. You're trying to fragment it out. When I think of the best, I guess, use of these in ag country is what farmer doesn't like nice square fields, all these rounded edges and things make it more difficult to plant and then more difficult to harvest. So square off some fields. So maybe it's a inside corner or a long ditch and you're taking the, I guess, a 30-yard buffer on each side to square off some fields. Those are the areas that you could utilize this prairie bedding mixture and plant it and have great success while still appeasing the farmer. Um, Adam, you had included dormant season disking as an option. In this. Before, before we do that, before I mention that, I'm going to piggyback on what you just said because the pollinator strips, the erosion strips um, in, in some of the CRP type programs are wonderful ways for to, us to work with the farmers to take areas of the fields that aren't very productive for them, don't have high yields, to create something that's more beneficial to wildlife, which could ultimately, I mean, we're talking 20, 30 yard strip that doesn't seem like a lot, but when you look in the grand scheme of things in the le- in the neighborhood, that might be some of the best bedding. Oh, yeah. And so look into those uh, programs to see if you can benefit the farmer as well as your wildlife. Yeah, for Win-win. sure. Win-win. No um, I have dormant season disking in here for the fact of when you look at some, some fields that have, let's just say, turf grass and you're trying to eliminate um, – you're trying to eliminate a lot of herbicide use. You could do some of these dormant season disking, uh, like let's just say in, in January, February, to where you're just lightly disking the ground, uh, not real aggressive. You don't have to think, i got to turn the whole thing over to bare dirt. You're just turning it a little bit to where you can help create more uh, exposed soil to where you get a lot of flush of ragweed, um, there's all kinds of different things that may come up, but you just, anytime you disc or plow, you hopefully you're not plowing. If you've listened to this podcast much, you've probably either turned us off or you, you don't plow. You've already moved past that. But disking is one of those things where we're just lightly disking, and anytime you do it, you have to be ready for what may happen. It may be uh, a flush of a invasive or a, a non-native that you don't want, but it might be better than nothing or better than the turf grass that was growing there. So dormant season disking is a way that you can get some more growth out of some species, get some taller stuff, more beneficial species like common ragweed. Um, planting shrubs, grasses, or forbs. kind of mentioned that in the first one when converting ag fields, but anytime you have like just a naturally, let's just say naturally occurring, or you're in Iowa and you have this area that's, is kind of grown up. You've burned it, but it's it's still a lot. It's still mainly dominated by grasses. There'd be two things I would try to do. I would try to do some strips of um, dormant season disking to promote some more forbs, but also maybe planting some shrubs, adding some uh, woody species to where um, you will get better bedding. Like you think of sumac. Well, anybody goes, what in the world? Why would you plant sumac? Like why? Well, it's pretty awesome summer bedding. Um, really great for quail, but also, um, browse has got tons of berries for the birds. It's got great buds that deer just hammer during late winter, early spring. So, um, it could be fantastic. Plus, I, I mean, it just adds more diversity to your landscape. It sure does. Um, to me, and then you look at planting other shrubs that might be more beneficial, like plums, even planting persimmons. Um, there's all kinds of different things. Think outside the box. Don't just get stuck in wanting to plant food plots. There's so much other stuff we can plant that has a more lasting long-term effect. And a different hunting strategy as well, like we're going to talk about in the following hunting podcast. Um, so food plots are great to hunt over. But so are, so are bedding areas. We're going to share some stories <clears throat> of us hunting over in close proximity to bedding areas during the month of November and success that we've had over that. So, Adam, I see you're looking up a plant. Oh, I'm not. I'm, okay. I'm actually looking up a 
people don't realize how bad my ADHD is, but um, so my plant profile of this week is the Illinois bundle flower. One of my favorites, go figure. Um, when we're talking about different species that are that are beneficial to a, 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 a long list of species, Illinois bundle flower is one of those. Um, it is a native species, has got a pretty, pretty big range. I mean, it's Texas, Mexico, even out in the Colorado, up into North Dakota, all the way east, looks like even into Virginia, definitely Kentucky and Tennessee and Ohio, Indiana. You get the picture. It's got a big range. Um, it's a really, really cool species because of its, not only is its, um, Basically, it's it's image. It kind of to me the leaves kind of resemble uh, sensitive briar. Oh, yeah, very much so. But it's it's also a legume, um, and it puts off a seed pod that is you know really that, interesting. At that stage, that that flower right there even looks like it looks like sensitive briar. Yeah, but it also kind of looks a little bit like a button bush to me. Yeah, it does because it's white. Yep. Um, it can grow up to four foot tall. It flowers through June and August. Um, the seed pods, to me, I, I'm trying to even think of how to describe what it looks like. But it's try like to a picture a small soybean pod or a partridge pea wadded up into a bundle. You know what I'm thinking? It's going to sound bizarre. And that that's a good analogy. But you know like when they serve ice cream, like soft serve ice cream, and they swirl the, the, ice, yeah. the top of the ice cream? It's got like the little waves in it. That's what this looks like, but if it were a bean pod. I know it sounds silly, but that's exactly what it's got like the swirl conical shape, but then it's a bean pod though. And how how wonder how many seeds are in it. <laughs> are they well that's the packet, never mind. Yeah. It's a uh, lot of seeds and a and little bitty in a little bitty bundle. Area. Yeah. But each plant has multiple bundles, and and in fact, if it's if it reaches a four to five foot tall range, it's got hundreds, if not thousands, the of seeds, seeds. per yeah. plant. Um, it's kind of a disturbed site um, plant, so a lot Driving of times you'll highway. see it on road ditches yeah. um, or places that have had disking or heavy grazing, and then the cows are removed. Um, it'll come up, um, but it's got a seed that's so beneficial to wildlife. Uh, especially Quail. birds. But they said prairie chickens. That's prairie cool. chickens, but it also also has some decent cover effect. It's just one mm-hmm. of those that I would like to have mixed in, and that's I, why it is in a I lot s- of the mixes with pure air natives because it provides such great food and forage for the I, wildlife. I think one of the coolest things to think about um, that plant is the cover aspect for broods. T- young oh, turkeys, umbrella quail. Yeah, they can, it can. It just shields them from aerial predators, but they can move so freely underneath. Uh, that that's a huge benefit benefit to them. I mean, it grows in dry soils, uh, full sun, five foot tall. It just is one of those things that can can take a beating and provide a lot of beneficial beneficial uh, or a lot of benefits to the wildlife. Yeah, for sure. So. So I chose a unique little critter. Uh, probably one that most people haven't even seen. Yeah, right, right. But that's why I chose it, because it's super common, but it's got a lot of cool facts about it. And that's the old gray squirrel. Everyone has seen a gray squirrel. Um, in Greek, squirrel means shadow tail, which is, I don't I don't know why that's cool, but it's cool. Um, did you know that hind... The hind legs of squirrels are double jointed, which gives them the ability to run up and down trees quickly. Hmm. See, see, you're learning something. Also, did you know that there was a squirrel rut? A male squirrel can smell a female in heat. I know up there's from a, a squirrel mile rut away, and I might offend some people, and I'll say this because there's a. Oh man, I don't know why we're going here, but there is a uh, spot on the farm called Squirrel Porn Holler. Oh gosh! Because we were squirrel hunting and the rut was in full swing, and it and was you, like you it everywhere. Yeah, really. And Chad, yeah, he came back and he's like, "That I don't know what I just saw, but yeah, it's it crazy must have been over there." February. <laughs> the rut, the rut is on. So it's a true thing. Males can actually smell female up to a mile away in heat. Wow, 
That's a long ways for a little squirrel like that. They don't um, have much of a nose. You'd think that. No. Huh. Did you know that squirrels have four toes on their front feet and then five on their back for climbing? No. Nope, also, squirrels can eat their own body weight every single week, which is a pound and a half. I had no idea they ate that much. I mean, you, you typically see them on a limb or on a on a log cutting a hickory nut or something, but a pound and a half a week, that's a lot of stinking food. Um, beyond, oh, we talk about invasives in our country a lot, but beyond the eastern, it's an eastern gray squirrel, beyond the eastern United States, they can be found in many western states, the United Kingdom, Ireland, and South Africa. So, We've been exchanging some invasives around the world. So they're invasive over there. I don't know if they're invasive. Oh. I said non-natives, but we've been exchanging these critters with other countries. Now they get to enjoy the uh, the gray squirrel. So you know, somebody asked me. They said, "Do you think that somewhere in China they're cursing the white oak tree or these that's, invasive?" I asked you the other day. Yeah. It's like I wonder if there's that many invasives that we give them. Like, are, do, are we returning the favor? And, and and are they viewing them as invasive over there? I, I feel like they would have to. Yeah. Um, that's something we need to look up. So another cool thing, and this is the last one, and I think everyone's probably had this story or at least heard the story that, hey, they saw a squirrel fall out of a tree and, like, just get up and start running. Squirrels can fall 30 meters high without hurting themselves. Like, their bodies are designed to be able to – take those falls that's wild yeah and you think you know they're everyone's skint a squirrel out and it's like what's so special about it how do they survive that fall but their tail actually acts as kind of like a parachute slows their fall down because it's so big and bushy wild 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 so anyhow i just quick google search found out that china suffers from invasive species more than any other country oh good 283 species. 283? Yeah. And we're up here crying. <laughs> <laughs> I got five, and they all came from China. Yeah. Oh, man. Hopefully, everybody enjoyed this podcast. Leave us a review. Shoot us an email, info at lanalegacy.tv. Um, and we'll see you in the hunting podcast. We'll wrap this up quick because, well, you're going to see us in the hunting podcast, and it's November, baby. we got to get to the tree stand. That's right. See ya. See ya.